Well, happy Father's Day, Hope Covenant. Make sure you hang around for the root beer floats and ice cream sandwiches after the service. And thanks to Joy and Lily for taking care of that for us. Hey, I was looking at my... Um, well, just looking back at the last year, you know how sometimes Facebook puts up their memories one year ago today or five years ago today, and then it just gives us kind of that thing that has been going on? Well, um, one year ago today, I was invited by a friend of mine to come and, and for three weeks uh, to preach and fill in for him while he was uh, gone on a trip. Um, anybody here remember a year ago? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was here. That was here at Hope. And just got me thinking, wow, you know, a lot has happened in one year, right? I mean, after that, um, Paul's cancer return and his battle uh, grew real quickly um, into a big, very difficult, um, a very difficult thing. And none of us would have imagined a year ago that a year later that we would have lost him. Um, here we are with Father's Day, and, and it's hard for many of us to have lost Paul, but imagine, especially on Father's Day, for his, his family, for his kids, um, what a difference a year can make. And, and none of us would have imagined a year ago that I'd be now here leading hope, um, especially me. I, I never imagined that that was what would happen. I mean, this past year has been a whirlwind. It's been a mixed bag, as we've said a number of times there's been sorrow, but there has been joy. There's been uh, shock and surprising good. But in all of this, just looking back over the last year, I was thinking just, just this weekend that, that there are two things that I'm really confident of as I'm looking back. Number one, um, the first, yeah, that, that God has called Heidi and I here for such a time as this. And so we will stand in here and love and serve and pray and lead like he's called us to do. And the second thing I'm confident of is, is this. Uh, the people of Hope, this family, um, you guys are, are amazing. There is something so special happening here. I mean, God began growing this unique family of Hope Covenant decades ago. And he had something very special in mind when, when, when God brought Hope Covenant to life, uh, and then especially as it grew under Pastor Duane. See, I believe that God has an intention for us as a people, Hope Covenant. And his intention for us, it's not for us to be the biggest church or the fanciest church in the East Valley. <laughs> uh, it's not for us to have the most impressive ministry options um, it's not for us to be a dispenser of religious goods and services, trying to meet every little thing, every little consumeristic demand that people have. No, God's purpose for us, Hope, um, it's for us to love God and to love people. Uh, for, for us to welcome and accept and give grace to imperfect people, which, by the way, that's all of us. Um, for us to be a place where we all take off our masks and follow Jesus as a community, trusting that lives do change, lives really change as God moves, and that love acts as our lives are being changed. And so friends, family of hope, that's what God has called us to do and to be 
And I am grateful for all of you who are willing to give and serve and partner with what God is shaping here in this church family. Um, All right, so I'm going to ask you now um, to go ahead. If you have a Bible with you, turn to 1 Samuel 17. And last week we started a series of messages on the life of David where we are going to look at the life of what the Bible calls a man after God's own heart. And so this morning, we're going to look at a real familiar story, maybe the most familiar story about David in the entire Bible. Most of you probably know or have heard of this story, and it takes up the whole 17th chapter of 1 Samuel. Now, this story begins with a very scary guy by the name of Goliath. Goliath is a huge dude. If he were alive today, he'd have been like a very high draft pick in the NBA. And the scripture says he was the champion of the Philistines. And he does kind of what was like this custom in war back then, which was to say, hey, listen, I'll challenge you to send out your champion and we'll just settle this whole deal one on one. Um, Verse four has a description of him. It says he was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, which is about 125 pounds. Verse 6 says, on his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. So that's like 15 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So there you go. I mean, this dude, right, Goliath is ready for battle. He wears this massive coat of armor, the head of the spear that he threw. The head alone was 15 pounds, and then on his legs were bronze greaves. I mean, you know, that's a little tricky. Like, have you ever tried walking around with bronze greaves on your legs? Yeah, yeah. Do you, <laughs> any of you wonder what the heck bronze greaves are? Yeah, well, they're just they're sort of like shin guards. So uh, and there's Goliath, right? And every day... Goliath would come out and he would yell at the Israelites, Choose a man to fight me. And every day the army of Israel would run and hide. Now this went on for 40 days. Can you imagine this? Every day Goliath comes out and goes, And every day the army of Israel runs and hides. Now the obvious guy to face Goliath was King Saul, the leader of Israel. Earlier in 1 Samuel, we find out that Saul was a big guy. He stood head and shoulders above all the other Israelites, and by now he was quite a warrior. But he was not eager to take on Goliath. In fact, he said, forget this, I'm not doing it. I'm the king, like, send some other guy. So he offered a a pretty decent incentive package for the soldiers. He said, "To, to any soldier in Israel who will fight this giant, I'll give you great wealth and tax exempt status for the rest of your life. And I'll let you marry my daughter. So, like, I'm thinking, apparently, Saul wasn't up for, you know, father of the year. I mean, he's going to give his daughter away pretty easily to somebody who would just come and stand in his place to fight the giant. But even with this huge offer, no soldier would take up the challenge. And for 40 days, Goliath kept up this game, but nobody would take him on. Meanwhile, 10 or 15 miles away in an obscure little village named Bethlehem was a teenager named David, who, if you remember from last week, David has secretly been anointed king. But in the meantime, while waiting for that to all come to pass, he's been going back and forth. He's kind of got two jobs. He plays harp for King Saul in the palace when when Saul needs some comfort. Um, So he'd do that job, and then he'd go back to shepherding his father Jesse's sheep. 
But one day, his father, Jesse, tells David, hey, go out to the battlefield to check on your three brothers who were in the army. Take, take some food and give it to your brothers and to the commanding officer, is what his dad says. So, you know, I, got, I, don't, I guess David gets like a, you know, gets on Craigslist and finds a, I don't know, a substitute shepherd? I, anyway, he heads out to the front lines. And here is what he steps into. For 40 days, Goliath has been taunting the Israelites. They have been living in fear and defeat for 40 days. But on the 41st day, one little Israelite is going to take on a task that nobody else would. On the 41st day, the history of Saul and Goliath and David and Israel would change forever because of a little shepherd boy, the scrawny little body, and a heart as big as Frodo's. Now here's what happens. David arrives at the army's camp, and then he runs up to the battle lines, and he gets there just in time for what I'm calling the Goliath drill. Right? Goliath comes out, he does his grrr thing, and, and the Israeli army just freaks out. It makes me think of that old Monty Python thing where they no, run away. And David sees this, and he can't believe it. He's like, what in the world is going on here? Like, guys, how can you let this clown insult the armies of the living God? What is the deal? Now, listen, David basically, he just comes in and he's calling it like he sees it here. David simply hasn't lost sight of who is really in charge here. But, you know, give the soldiers a little bit of slack here. Like, remember, David hasn't been there for the past 40 days, watching all the warriors get fearful and run away every single day. I mean, think about that. No matter who you are, when all the leaders and brave fighters run and hide day after day, I think it'd be pretty easy to start thinking, wow, this is pretty serious here. Like, if the biggest, baddest, toughest warriors are scared, then I better hide too. You know, friends, fear is contagious. And by now in the story, the whole army was scared to death. And this happens. This happens in churches, happens in families, happens in companies. Like, fear is infectious. Like, people start to flee, to freak out, to get discouraged. It's contagious. Now, Eugene Peterson points out that David comes on the scene with what he calls a God-dominated, not a Goliath-dominated imagination. It's a God-dominated imagination, not a Goliath-dominated imagination. And I love that phrase. See, David knows God is real, God is powerful, God is present, and because he knows that, he can't believe the armies of God are acting like cowards, and so he says so. Now, apparently there wasn't anyone else in the army who wasn't stricken with this Goliath phobia, this sickness of the soul that kept every warrior from seeing the reality of God's power in this situation. So when this kid starts talking big, word gets around quick. And the first reaction we hear to David's bold heart comes from Eliab. Now, do you remember Eliab? We met Eliab last week. Eliab is David's oldest brother. David, if you, if you weren't here or don't know the story, David's the youngest of eight sons. And if you remember last week's story, the prophet Samuel came to David's family in secret to choose the next king of Israel. And when David's dad, Jesse, brought out son number one, Eliab, 
Eliab, like he had king written all over his face. He looked like a king, probably talked like a king. But do you remember why God said, eh, Eliab is not the man? Yeah, God told Samuel that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And what did the scrawny littlest brother David have that apparently none of the other seven brothers had? A heart for God. Now, I imagine that whole deal didn't set well with the older brothers, especially the oldest ones. I mean, in front of the elders of the town of Bethlehem, in front of his father and his entire family, Eliab gets passed over for David? <laughs> and, and why? Well, David had the kind of heart God was seeking. Let's go back to the battleground here. David comes out, and in verse 26, this is what David says. He uh, asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And so they repeated to him what they'd been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. Now watch this. Look at the, the, the wounding words. Look at this next verse here. The wounding words here, the arrows that Eliab throws at the heart of David here. When Eliab, David's older brother, verse 28, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Right there, Eliab, he insults David. What are you doing here? Who's out there watching those few sheep? And then the arrow, I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. See, the attack is at the level of David's heart. Imagine that, that maybe here uh, Eliab is still stinging at not being chosen as king because God looked at his heart and Eliab didn't have what it takes. And then David, on the other hand, who didn't look like he had it what it took for anything else, didn't have anything really going for him compared to his brothers, except for the one thing that made a difference, his heart. Now, just f full disclosure here, uh, we, no perfect people allowed here, right? Is that still true, right? How about no perfect pastors? Is that okay? Is that included? Okay, just checking to see if I'm people here. So, um, Honestly, this part of the story, it just irritates me because I can relate to David's situation. In, in some ways, it seems like um, many times when I try to do something in my life, there have almost always been some sort of Eliabs somewhere in the picture. You know what I'm talking about? Like you get, you get an idea or you really want to step out and follow God's leading with your life or you decide you're going to take a big risk or big step. You're going to really stretch your faith. Uh, maybe even some real adventure that will test you, that will cost you. And then someone or something always seems to jump in with criticism or discouragement, right? Like, dude, that's really stupid. Like, why in the world would you ever want to do that? Anybody ever heard that one tossed your way before, right? Or, oh, that'll never, that'll never work. Or, dude, you don't know what you're doing. Anybody ever have those kinds of comments in your story, in your life? 
Uh, well, that's what, I'm, that's what I mean. Like, I remember when I, um, when I started out in, in a particular church in a ministry and was, was being brought on by the leadership there to build a whole new ministry and put together a team, and the, there were a number of folks that were already involved, and when I got there, I thought, great, we've got this awesome team that's going to move right ahead, and we launched some kind of newer ideas. Well, the folks that were there, um, I'd say maybe a third of them, well, probably half of the actually good leaders and so-called mature Christians wanted nothing to do with it and just started taking pot shots and criticizing and complaining. And, and eventually, those folks left. Um, the cool thing was that that ministry ended up bringing up a whole new crop of young leaders and was uh, really amazing in seeing a lot of new folks reached for Christ. But, but it was just a surprise um, and part of the problem for me, looking back on that season, is, is sometimes, again, here's the confession, sometimes I spent, uh, sometimes I still spend so much of my emotional energy fighting against Eliab's. And when I do that or when you do that, it's a huge distraction. And you know what it does when we get focused on that? When we spend our energy on that stuff, it, 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 it saps the energy from what we're actually called to go and do. And it keeps us from spending our energy on the real battle that we're called to. Because instead of fighting against Goliath, we waste our time and energy fighting off and arguing with the Eliabs. And so when I read this passage, this part of the story, it just kind of blows me away because David could have done that. It would have been understandable. He could have wasted all his time and energy fighting his own brother, his brother's criticisms, and I would have been tempted to do that, honestly, but he doesn't because he knows that this is not the story of David and Eliab. This is the story of David and Goliath. So look at verse 29. This is all David says here. He says, well, now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? Then he turned away to someone else. That's, that's pretty good right there. Like he states his position and then he turns away to someone else. Now, on the one hand, he doesn't just, you know, give in to Eliab, but on the other side, he doesn't, like, go get the slingshot either, right? <laughs> here's, here's what I think. He doesn't, he just doesn't allow unfair criticism to have much power in his life. He just gets on with his mission. And honestly, I just wish I did that more of the time. When detractors or critics start firing away at me or at you, what if we stop and remember, God has something for me to do. I'm not going to get sidetracked, right? I mean, how about you guys? Like, how do you deal with criticism? If we even stopped here to think about this, like, um, well, here just to show a hands on this one, I think over the last, you know, say, I don't know, five, ten years or so of your life, how many of you have ever been criticized at least once? Anybody, right? Oh, okay, good, good, good. I would have you turn to your neighbor and talk about it, but it could have been by your spouse, and I do not want to have to offer marriage counseling, so we'll skip that part here. And I look at how I handle criticism, and I, and I often wish that I had done it differently. Uh, I wish I'd done what David did here, just dismiss it and move on, because too often I think we let criticism or accusation cause us to lose heart. And I think that the enemy, and I mean the real enemy, loves it when we get sidetracked by opposition or criticism because then our hearts just start withering away. Now, here's something else that I thought about this. Here's something that's, again, this is true about me, and I hate to admit this, but, but honestly, I think if I was doing what David was doing here, offering to go and fight Goliath, um, 
I think I'd, you know, maybe want some of the people around me to respond with like, hey, way to go, man. Like, what a brave thing you're doing. Hey, we admire your courage. You're our hero. We're going to applaud you as you go into battle. I mean, I hate that. But you kind of think and wish, like, how come nobody's doing that for him there? Because David, notice here, he doesn't get that kind of support. In fact, he gets the opposite of support. He gets attacked. I mean, you expect your enemy to take shots at you, but way too often people who are supposed to have your back start lobbing hand grenades as well. John Orberg points this out. He says, when you get real serious about trusting God and facing your Goliath, there's a real good chance that there will be some people in your life who will be threatened by that, and they'll want to hold you back. And they will not feel good at all about somebody else who's facing Goliath when they're not facing their Goliath. Right? I mean, it's true. I think, you know, we do. We expect attack from our enemies. But it can be painful when it comes from somebody who's a part of your own family or your own church. But friends, listen. If you are a leader, if you are a risk taker at all, this is especially true for you. Um, David doesn't get a lot of support along the way, and much of the time, you might not either. But again, when we are resolved to trust God, to face our Goliath, there's even a chance that some people will feel threatened by the boldness that you display when you do that. They might even want to hold you back, especially if they're unwilling to face their own Goliath. And so the truth is, we're going to face opposition and some criticism when we try to do what's right and honor God. It's just a part of the deal, right? And sometimes from your own brother, sometimes from somebody who you know and love. And what can happen, I think we can, you know, we can give up. We can hear the criticism, we give up, we lose heart, we can do that. Or, or we can do what I wish I would do less of. <laughs> we get defensive and we spend the rest of our lifetime to straighten, you know, the jerks out. Um, But let me tell you from experience, it's really hard to straighten those kinds of people out. Um, But there's a third way we could say, all right, this is what God is calling me to do the best I can tell, and then we get on with what God has called us to do. And it just made me think about us here at Hope, um, as a family at Hope. And and, um, what about us as a church family in the Goliaths that we face? I mean, our church has been through a lot. When, when Pastor Dwayne knew God was calling him to retire, uh, what, four or five years ago, he knew and was confident that God was bringing hope into a new season. He and I have lunch together and talk, and we've talked before I even came here, and so I remember this before I was ever a part of this, but he knew God was calling him into something new, and Ryan, wasn't, uh, Ryan was on staff. Uh, he hadn't been here for long, but he was on staff here, but um, he's, Ryan's been here through all kinds of circumstances um, and even though Pastor Duane was super clear to everyone when he retired that hope was not about him, right? No church needs to be about some celebrity leader that just follows that person or is just there because of the staff people. And Duane was super clear about that. Um, and he was super clear that people need to honor God and what God was doing here. Still, um, understandably, uh, some folks moved on from hope. And, and we had Scott as an interim pastor for a year and a half. And Pastor Paul came and, and then he ended up getting sick. And, and we've stepped in here. And, and I look around and, and while a bunch of new people have come and joined our community, other folks have moved on. Um, change for some people has just been, been difficult. But here we are, friends. Here we are, and it's a new season. And maybe it's not what we expected, especially if you've been around here for a while. But um, listen, 
Uh, God, and it's literally been God, my friends. God has assembled this new team to accomplish his plans, his purposes for this church family. And as I mentioned uh, up front in the message, a year ago today is when I filled in here at Hope, and none of us had any idea that in a year we would have lost Paul and that I'd be leading Hope. And in the meantime, through the year, we lost our children's pastor, moved on, and our youth pastor uh, moved on after eight months. Uh, But then God brought Pastor Sharon in April uh, for our kids and Pastor Hector just a month ago for our student ministry. And and, and our children's ministry is doing great already. It's just so, so good. Sharon's doing an amazing job building a healthy ministry for our kids and healthy things for our volunteers as well so we're not just burning people out. And each week we're getting better and stronger and smarter and things are being done with excellence in our kids' ministry. And, and with Hector in our student ministry, just the past three Sunday nights when you would expect youth group stuff just to kind of die off, uh, instead we have had more teens show up for our youth group than we've had in more than a year. Not that numbers are our ultimate goal, but I think it's something to take note of that God is moving in our youth group as Hector and Mikey Descoli and Sharon Gregory and Karen Robinson are all building this new thing. See, we have this excellent group of elders here at Hope as well. We've got a great group of elders. We've got a great group of staff with, with Ryan and Sharon and Hector and myself, and we're about to add uh, Shelly Sloterbeek to manage the office as Tracy moves into something she's been called to do as a chaplain at a hospital. And right now, I'm looking ahead, and this has the potential to be one of the strongest church ministry teams that I've ever led or served on. So, friends, God is truly up to something here at Hope. And new people are coming every week to just kind of check this church family out. And lots of them are saying things like, hey, you know, I've tried out some of the bigger churches and it's fine and good, but wow, when I come here, I do feel like there's, there's a chance that I could be known, that I could be cared for. Um, something I hear all the time is that these are the friendliest and kindest people, and it's real, that I've ever met in a church. And it's so, so true. So true. Um, and sure, we've got lots to work on. We've got a lot of things to, to move ahead in. And yes, we're in a season of change. But listen, all healthy growth involves change. It involves change. And so those of you who have remained faithful to this family throughout all of that change, those of you that understand that church is intended to be a family, not a business, um, like we could panic when people get discouraged or complain or operate in fear Or when some folks move on, we could do that. We could get all scared. It's contagious. Or or what if we notice what God is doing and listen to his call to us? And and then we say, okay, this is what we think God is calling us uh, us to do the best we can tell. And then we get on with what God has called us to do. And yeah. I love you, Dalton. (laughs) And that's what I'm here committed to do, right, as the pastor and leader of Hope, to discern what God is calling me and us to do and then get on with it. And in our story, that's what David did. He didn't let Eliab and criticism hold him back. He moved on. And in verse 31, it says, 
What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose account on the heart of the, or uh, no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go fight him. And Paul replied, "Uh, (laughs) you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he's been a fighting man since his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and, and carried a sheep off from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Must have been a pretty good speech because Saul says to David, go and the Lord be with you. Right? Now remember here, David's just a kid, okay? He's never been in battle before. So Saul sees this. He's just telling the truth. He's not being a jerk. He's just, it's just true. Like, hey, David, listen, bud. It's fine to talk big, but are you sure you know what you're getting yourself into here? And again, it brings me back to Eugene Peterson's phrase, the God-dominated imagination. David was consumed by that. He didn't pretend that there was no giant. He, he didn't pretend that he was someone that he wasn't. But David looked at what God had already done in his life, in his story, when when a lion or a bear came and attacked the sheep, and he said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, will also deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. See, David didn't get all big and tough the day he showed up at the battle. His confidence in God started being built long before this 41st day of the challenge of Goliath. And I do think that sometimes, you know, we'll hear a message or get inspired and and we're tempted to think, in our day especially, that when we face this moment of crisis, when we face our Goliath moment, like the real big one, and each of us, by the way, will face several Goliath moments in our life, but, but we tend to think that we can just develop that bold heart out of the blue. And honestly, I just don't think it happens that way. Like, I think that if we wait until we're facing our Goliath, we probably won't do so well. Reminds me of a classic preacher story about that. Man arrives at the pearly gates of heaven, and St. Peter says to the guy, well, I can't find in your record that you did anything particularly good or particularly bad. Can you just tell me one impressive deed your whole life long? Just one really impressive thing that you did. And the man says, well, one time I saw some bikers menacing a young woman. I stopped my car. I took out a tire iron. I walked up to their leader, a huge, hairy, ugly guy full of tattoos. He had a nose ring. I reached up and I ripped that ring right out of his nose. And I said, you leave this girl alone, you hear? And then I stared them all down and I said, now get out of here, every single one of you, or you will have to answer personally to me. And St. Peter was quite impressed. When did this happen, Peter said. The man said, about two minutes ago, right? (laughs) Some of you will get that even better later. Now the point is, if we wait until our Goliath moment comes along, whatever your Goliath is, it probably won't go so well. 
okay? In the story of David, he faced several situations in his life that required courage before he ever got to Goliath. And God used those situations to form in David a bold heart. See, it was in the daily grind of David's work as a shepherd where it was boring, friends. <laughs> but in that boring place, he accepted the challenges that came up to defend his little flock. And for you and I, our heart, our bold heart is developed in the same way. When we stand strong in countless moments of life that can seem just insignificant or unimportant, like every time we who are parents, every time we, we love our child enough to engage with them with understanding and love instead of, you know, demanding compliance and being impatient, but when we engage with understanding and love, boldness actually grows in us. Or when those of us who are married, when we are willing to stop and examine the words that we speak to our spouse and have the courage to admit when we have been harsh, insensitive, unkind, or selfish, that increases and strengthens our bold heart. When those of you who are in business, um, when you reject an offer that is in any way shady or questionable, um, when you do that, you fight an integrity battle that prepares you for bigger victory in the future, and I believe it prepares you for God to trust you with even more in the future. When you do that, that grows in you a bold heart. Or when any of us overhear a juicy morsel of gossip and refuse to pass it on to other people, boldness is being fortified in us. See, it's in those little moments of daily life that prepare us for these big Goliath moments. And, and I have some Goliaths in my life, and you do too, and I really want us to be a community of followers of Jesus who have bold hearts of courage, just like David did. Because, friends, we live in a world that is constantly trying to steal away our hearts. Every single one of us has lost heart at some point, and some of us are, are living our lives right now with buried or wounded hearts. Like, we're just playing it safe. Some of us are like, I'm not going to take any risks, right? We don't want to take any risks. We don't want to get hurt, so I'm not going to trust anyone. Uh, or maybe it's time to take a risk in your life, and you know it. It's time to try something new, but you get paralyzed by fear. Or it's time to maybe end an unhealthy relationship, but, but you just can't do it, because what will you do then? See, we want to make a difference in life, or we want to fight the battle. And we look at stuff and goes, oh, it just seems so big and impossible, and who am I kidding anyway? Like, we want to jump in somewhere, maybe, and, and serve and help move things forward, but then we think, oh, what difference is it going to make? And friends, we just so easily lose heart. We think those little things aren't the big deal, but they prepare us for the big deal. Because when something really big comes along, if we haven't been doing this other stuff, we can't even imagine trying to step up to the plate. A friend of mine next week um, is going to be here leading worship with us. And about 10, 12 years ago, we were um, in the country of Turkey for a couple weeks touring and doing music. And uh, we were on our way to a, a concert with a group of Christians in a town called Esparta. And we got a phone call. Our, our driver, our interpreter, uh, host got a phone call and said, hey, um, there's a bomb threat and so they've had to move the, the venue, but, but they think they're going to get more threats, so we probably shouldn't go. And so I looked at the rest of the band, and, and they were all younger guys, and, 
and gals, and I said, well, what do you guys think? And, and they, one of them asked a really great question. Well, are the Christians from the church that we were going to go and minister with, are they going to be there? The guy says, ask the question. I'm like, yeah, yep, no, they're still going to go. And they were all like, well, pfft then we're going to do it. <laughs> we're going to go as well. See, they, we met then a group of believers with a God-dominated imagination. We met these folks that had been through so much that they sometimes had discernment and said there was something that they discerned and said, no, we're not, we're not doing it. But often they would just know. They had to walk with God really close just for their safety. But they were not going to be deterred and scared away. And that had built in them such a courage. We met some amazing people when we went to that town that we would have missed out on had we not gone. And for David, it was fighting the lions and bears while he was a shepherd. That's what gave him confidence that God will deliver, right? God will show, save. God will show up. And so when Goliath came along, David was ready because his confidence was strong. And his confidence was not in himself, not in his battle. It was in God. Now, worship team, will you come? I'm going to wrap up for today, um, and we'll finish the story of David and Goliath next Sunday. But, but as I do that, Hope family, hear me. This story of David and Goliath, this is not a story about David's raw courage or David's skill with the sling or even David's willingness to take a risk. It's not a story about that. This is a story about God. And your life, your story is not a story about your courage or your skill or just your willingness to take a risk. As good as those things are, the story of your life and mine, if we will let it be, is a story about God and about the power that God wants to show in our lives and in our battles. See, only God could take something this small and do something that big. Only God. And my friends, God is still in the business of delivering bold-hearted Davids from giant Goliaths. And I don't know how big your Goliath is, but I'll promise you this. He or she or it is not bigger than God. <laughs> now, we're going to finish up the story next week. But as we go back to worship, I'm going to ask you... Um, to listen for the voice of God in your own life. I'm going to ask God to speak to our hearts for a moment. So if you have a journal with you, you can pull it out or you can flip to the spot in your bulletin where there's some uh, notes or writing space or just find somewhere to write. Um, and there's a couple questions on the screen. Well, we're going to give you a couple moments or a couple minutes here before we do our closing song for you just to start writing. And the questions are this. The first one is, what are the Goliaths that I'm facing in my journey right now? What are the Goliaths? Think of the Goliaths in your story right now. And the second is, what situations am I facing in my life that I can entrust to God right now so that he can build boldness in my heart? So we'll give you a couple of moments while the band just plays instrumentally. Let me pray for us, God. Thank you um, that you are with us, that you bring courage and boldness to us and you develop it through every little thing that we face. I pray even in these moments as we reflect on these questions or anything else you're stirring in the hearts of each person here, you would let boldness arise in our hearts. And God, may that boldness arise, not because we're trying to muster up courage, but because we know that you are good. You are for us. You are with us. You are good. And you can be trusted. So increase our boldness, increase our courage 
Jesus' name. Take just a couple minutes to think about those questions and then we'll move to the closing song.